Hey, dear Father, as we come before you today, uh, we thank you for your powerful words spoken so many years ago. Uh, and we just pray that as we read it today, we will see that it is meant for us to pay heed to and to pay attention. And we pray that you may help us in this. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, a few months ago, uh, my son had a really bad stomach pain. And uh, we went to see the doctor. And the doctor ups, uh, diagnosed his problem as an upset stomach and gave him some medicine for stomach cramps and asked him to go home to rest and sleep it off. But unfortunately, the pain got worse and worse and worse, so much so that we had to call an ambulance and bring him to the hospital. And after a few tests, the real diagnosis was that he had appendicitis and the effective prescription was to have an immediate operation. Now, the first doctor had given us the wrong diagnosis and the wrong prescription. And later on, we found out what the real diagnosis was and the real effective prescription. And I remember as I was preparing the sermon and remembering that incident just a few months ago, I think that for many people today, for many people within uh, churches and many people outside of churches as well, they have this problem called sin. And with the problem of sin, they've been given the wrong diagnosis and the wrong prescription. So uh, I've been on leave for the last two weeks, and when I'm on leave, I usually visit churches, just to visit different churches and to listen to what's happening there and just see what's happening. And uh, last week, I visited a fairly large church near my house, and the pastor was preaching on uh, the prodigal son. And as he rightly said, the pastor said that it's one of the most famous parables that Jesus told about the parable son. And it's about how the son of a very wealthy man asks for his inheritance before the father dies. He takes his inheritance, he goes to live in a far country, he doesn't want anything to do with the father, he cuts off the father, but eventually he realizes his error, he comes back to the father, the father welcomes him back with open arms. And the pastor said that uh, the son uh, represents a man and the father represents God. And I think that's something that we can all agree on. But uh, that's where uh, he, after that, that's where he started going wrong, I think, with his sermon, because he then went to say that the parable has really two main points. It's the point about the problem of pain for man, and it's about the picture of God's grace. And he went on to talk a lot about pain. It was one of the main points of his sermon. He talked about the pain of the prodigal son, because he was very hungry. Uh, the pain of the prodigal son, because he had no job. The pain of the prodigal son because he was lonely. The pain of the prodigal son because of hopelessness. And then he went on to say that God and His grace, God the Father and His grace had welcomed him back from his pain. And later on he made an altar call and he called the, the, the whole congregation. He said, if you, if you are in pain, uh, come to God and God will heal you of his, your pain. Now as I was listening to this sermon, I thought, that uh, he got the problem right, which was sin, but he got the diagnosis wrong. Because the diagnosis for this pastor was pain. Pain was the main problem of sin. And the prescription was healing, healing for your pain. Now today, as we look at the passage in chapter 2, we see that the problem of sin is not pain, but the problem of sin is God's judgment. So in verse 1 of chapter 2, God says to his people, Gather together, gather yourselves together, you shameful nation. Before the decree takes effect, before that day 
passes like wind blown sharp before the Lord's fierce anger comes upon you, before the day of the Lord's wrath comes upon you. So instead of listening to what this uh, pastor had said about the problem of pain, which is uh, the problem of sin, which is pain, let's look at God's word because God's word will always give you the right diagnosis and the right prescription. Now God's word here had come to the prophet Zephaniah, and I think it's very important to remember that this was written during the time of uh, Josiah, the king of Judah, and it was, he lived between seven, sorry, six forty and six twelve B.C., six hundred years before the birth of Jesus, 2,600 years before our time. And the problem was that God's people of that time were like the prodigal son. They were sinning against God. They were turning against Him. They were far, far away from God. But the diagnosis of God was not pain, that they had some emotional pain because of their sin. God didn't diagnose their problem as a psychiatrist in an emotional or therapeutic way. He says the problem of their sin was judgment. Specifically, the judgment which will come on the day of the Lord's wrath. And that's why last week, if you remember last week in the sermon, in chapter 1, this word, the day, kept coming up over and over again. So God said that on this day, He would punish the princesses and the kings of Judah. On that day, he would punish those who worship false gods and idolatry. On that great day, he would bring great suffering because they had sinned against God. See, the people of Judah during that time were not in pain. They were actually very happy. If you remember reading chapter 1, they were very happy doing their business. Uh, not on the toilet, I mean, but doing their, their other business. I mean, as in business, business. right? They were very happy with their riches and their wealth and their big houses and the wines of their vineyard. But they were still sinning. And the problem with that sin was that God said that He would judge their sin. See, sin does not necessarily result in pain. In fact, I know of some friends of mine who are living in sin who are extremely and exceedingly happy and pain-free in their life. Sin does not always lead to pain. It sometimes leads to pain. But sin will always lead to God's judgment. And that judgment, as we have read in Zephaniah 1, was going to come about in this day, this great day of the Lord. So God says to His people in chapter 2, that they are to gather together, gather themselves together, and to seek the Lord, seek the Lord. And there's a great urgency, right? If you read chapter uh, 2, verse 1 to 3, there's a great urgency, a great seriousness and intensity about it. God is saying you need to be very serious about this problem of sin because there is great importance and seriousness about it. It's like God asking them to take action while the house is on fire or you're in the middle of an earthquake or you're in the middle of a sinking boat. Right, you need to great, take great urgent action to avoid judgment. And he goes on to describe this day of the Lord that he would bring upon the people of Judah during Zephaniah's day. He says that that day in verse 2, right? Look at what it says there in verse 2. That day will pass like a wind-blown shaft. Now what is shaft? Do you all know what shaft is? Shaft is 
Uh, if you look up here in these pictures, I thought visually it would be very helpful for you to see what we're talking about. Shaft, it's like, you know when you get wheat, okay, you know you get wheat. Uh, wheat are those things which you make bread from, alright? And if you get wheat, if uh, the, the, the wheat or the, the grain of the wheat is covered by a husk, uh, it's like biology class over again, right? You know, the husk are these things which sort of cover the, 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 the grain, alright? And if you rub the grain, next slide, you come up with this shaft or the husk. And it's a very thin, fibrous membrane. So next slide, it looks like this. It's like almost like dust floating in the air. It's so thin, right? And what happens is, if you imagine this really, really thin membrane uh, hit by a gust of wind, what happens? The shaft will blow away really quickly. Okay, so the next slide. Okay, so it's very thin, right? You can see it's very thin. Okay, next slide. So what happens is, uh, even people today, next slide, when they throw up the, the, the husk, the husk is blown away by the wind and the little grains of wheat fall to the ground. And what he's really saying here is the day of God's judgment, the day of the Lord will come very suddenly. Because you know, when the wind comes, it's unexpected, right? You mean one minute you're there looking at the husk, next minute the wind comes and it's blown away. And what here is a is given to us is a picture of the suddenness of the day of the Lord. It's not something which you will see or you will prepare for or you can see coming a long way in the distance. It's something that happens just like that. In the New Testament, it describes the day of the Lord in very similar terms. The day of the Lord, God says, comes like a thief in the night. Uh, the day of the Lord, the New Testament says, comes like a flash of lightning. Can you get ready for a flash of lightning? You can't, isn't it? Because it just happens. So in the same way, there's great urgency for God's people to come together and to seek the Lord because the day of the Lord will come suddenly and they will not be prepared for it. He then goes on to say in, uh, in, in verse 2 that the day of the Lord, right? Become, you know, you've got to seek the Lord before the Lord's fierce anger comes upon you. Before the day of the Lord's wrath comes upon you. Now, if you notice here, both times it describes God's anger. One is wrath, one is fierce, or what is called burning anger. So the day of the Lord is not something which is going to be a, a very trivial day, a day where God is just slightly irritated with you, or a bit annoyed by your sin, or you know, a bit upset by their sin, but it is a day of fierce, burning anger and wrath. Now, a true story was told once by a pastor, and I, I heard it, and the pastor was relating a true story of how uh, a father uh, uh, and his wife uh, had uh, a baby, and they had prepared uh, a room just for the baby, which you know you usually do, so you paint the, the room, I guess blue if it's a boy, or pink if it's a girl, and you know, you put a nice cord and you put a, a nice carpet and everything. And they prepared a, a beautiful room for their baby. And the wife had given birth and they put the baby there. And the baby had been there for a little while. But the one day, uh, while the baby was still very young, suddenly they heard this great crash. And what had happened uh, was, uh, the, they ran down the stairs and they found a stone thrown through the window. And there was a drunken man outside who had thrown a stone through the window as, a, as I guess, 
as drunken people do, for no particular reason at all. And uh, how did the, the, the father feel? Well, the father, according to this pastor, felt fierce anger, as you would. He felt fierce anger, burning anger, that this drunken man had thrown a stone through the window of his young baby's room. And I think that that anger came from a sense of justice, a, a call of judgment for a great wrong that had been done. And I remember hearing the pastor saying, well, that's exactly what God will, will do on the day of judgment, isn't it? That is the sort of anger, righteous anger, burning anger, that God will pour out on people because they had sinned against Him. And all the more so here in uh, Zephaniah chapter 2, where God's people living in God's own land were basically throwing stones through His house day after day. They were worshipping idols, they were having violence in the land, they were deceiving one another, they were, uh, there was corruption, there was uh, you know, inappropriate relationships with other people. And God here would be very, very angry and He would pour out that anger on the day of the Lord. And that's why God said with such great urgency that they must gather together the shameful nation to gather together and to seek the Lord. So in verse 3, he says, Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land. You who do what He commands, seek righteousness, seek humility. Now, as we look at this passage, uh, it seems very interesting, isn't it? If you look at God's Word, it's also very important to pay attention to what the Word says very closely. He says, seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, you who do what He commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. But it seems as if they are really humble and they really do what He commands. But yet, these people are called to continue to seek righteousness and continue to seek humility. See, part of the problem of God's people was that there were probably people who were sincere and following God, who wanted to turn to Him. But by and large, the majority of, of the people in the land during this time, they were turning away from God. Even though they had a good king, Josiah, as we learn in chapter 1, was a good king. And he was trying to turn the people's heart back to God, but still, they were not turning back to Him. In fact, if you look at chapter 1, they were not doing what was right. So actually, seeking God meant that you had to Seek the things of God. There's no point saying that I love God, but not do what God wants you to do. Right? There's no point saying to God, I follow you God, but I don't follow the things that you want me to do. And what was happening was, they were pretending to seek God, but actually in their hearts, they were very far away from Him. So I know that uh, many uh, years ago, and I think we still uh, are quite familiar with it, in the Two Ways to Live track, we said that the heart of sin was actually to make your own self God and to not recognize God as God. And that was what was happening in Judah during this time. The people were not seeking God. They were making themselves God and living unrighteously. They were not doing the righteous things that God wanted them to do. Right? They were not doing what was pleasing to God or following God. If you go back to uh, chapter 1, 
you see that uh, in verse 6, it says, Those who turn back from following the Lord and neither seek the Lord nor inquire of Him. See, people were not following God. They were not following and listening to God. They were not obeying Him. They were not doing the righteous things, but they were doing the unrighteous things. They were making themselves their own God. So what God said was, if you want to seek me, seek to do the righteous things that I desire. The second thing is quite a surprising thing. It says there that uh, they are to, to seek humility. All you who are humble in the land, seek humility. The word here for humility is also the word meekness. Meekness. Now, I think it's very surprising that we see this instruction. I think it's very important whenever we look at God's word, if we see that something is surprising to us, it's something that we need to pay attention to because it shows that our thinking is not on the same wavelength as God. So why does he say, seek humility? Seek humility. I think it's because pride is one of the key sins or the key obstacles for them to follow God and follow God's way. See, the proud person is unwilling to humble him or herself to God's will because they think that they know better. And I think that right from the very beginning, there is this sin called pride, which seeks to make ourselves equal to God and not be willing to bow the knee before God and to be humble before God. See, if you remember, what was the original sin? What was the original sin? Well, in Genesis chapter 3 and chapter 2, remember the original sin was to take the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil and to eat it. Now, why did Adam and Eve eat that fruit, the fruit of knowing the knowledge of good and evil? The Bible doesn't tell us that the fruit looked very tasty. It wasn't like they had a durian craving, right? And this was the only durian in the, in the Garden of Eden, right? So they couldn't help themselves. They really had to eat the durian. It wasn't because the fruit looked really nice, right? You know, it just was so attractive looking. You know, it looked like a bunch of strawberries or something. I don't know, but you know, it's so nice. Or like some Japanese fruit or something, you know, the packaging is really good. It's not as if it looked so nice, they had to eat it. But the reason why they ate it was, like what the serpent tempted the woman by saying, You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. See, Satan was uh, appealing to, to pride. Isn't it to pride? Because now the mere creature, the mere created being can be equal to God. No longer do Adam and Eve have to, you know, be content to stay beneath God, but now they are equal to God. They know things like God. They are like God. See, pride is an unwillingness to accept our place under God. It's, 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 a, it's a desire to be equal or even greater than God so that we do not have to listen to Him anymore. So that's why it says here that God says to His people, Seek the Lord, but seek the Lord by seeking righteousness and seeking humility. And do so with great urgency. Right? This whole ver- set of verses from verse 1 to 3 should be like with flashing lights and blaring alarms and screaming bells, right? Because there's great urgency in doing so. 
And we know so because in verse 4, all the way to verse 15, it tells us what is going to happen. Now obviously when uh, we live in Singapore today in uh, 2014, we have the benefit of hindsight. And we can actually see that the prophecy of God through Zephaniah came true in a blink of an eye, very, very quickly. Okay, so I want you to bear in mind, when was Zephaniah written? Okay, nobody remembers because you can't remember these things, right? But he wrote during the time of Josiah, okay? And Josiah ruled between 640 to 612 BC. Okay, 640 to 612 BC. Okay, okay so first slide. Okay, so... In, in uh, probably five years after the latest time that uh, Zephaniah could have written, the Babylonian Empire, which started their great reign from 605 to 638 BC. So remember, when did Zephaniah write? 640 to 612, right? That's the reign of Josiah. So somewhere along that, in that period, Zephaniah wrote these words that we have, we have given here. Very soon after... 7 years, 10 years, 20 years from when the time Zephaniah wrote these words. Look at what happened. The great Babylonian empire arose from Babylon and swept across all the way south here. So all the prophecies that were written about in verse 4 onwards all came true. The Philistines, the Philistines were all here in the coastal region. Their great cities of Gaza, Ashkelon, Ashdod and Akron were all uprooted. Okay, So today in modern day, uh, you know, you read newspaper about the Gaza Strip and about Hamas and everything. That's where, that's where it is here. Okay, so in that that day, God said that all this region would be swept away, and within a few, uh, uh, just a few years, the Babylonian Empire did achieve that. He went on to say about Moab and Ammon that again, Moab and Ammon would be like a peat, a place of weeds and salt pits. So here. Moab and Ammon were also destroyed by the Babylonians as they came through between 605 to 538 BC. He talked of Cush. Cush was actually the, the Egyptians, right? The, the Egyptians were the people of Cush. Again, the Babylonians swept through and conquered the people of Cush and destroyed them by the sword. But he leaves uh, the, the best for last, isn't it? Because actually when you look at this country called Assyria, if you look at verse 13, Assyria during the time of Zephaniah, were like the superpower of the day. They were like the, uh, the, the United States or, or Russia of the day. Okay, So look at what he says there in verse 13. God says, He will stretch out His hands against the north and destroy Assyria, leaving Nineveh utterly desolate and dry as a desert. Flocks and herds will lie down there. Creatures of every kind, the desert owl and the screech owl, will roost in the columns and they are hooting will echo through the windows, rubble will fill the doorways, and the beams of cedar will be exposed. This is the city of revelry that lived in safety. She said to herself, I am the one. There is none beside me. What a ruin she has become a lair for wild beasts. All who pass by her scoff and shake their fists. Now, when it, it, it sort of when we read about Assyria, we're like, uh, what's the big deal, right? But Assyria was like the big, big country of the day. They were like the superpower of the day. Okay, so this is the Babylonian. Oh no, yeah, this is the Babylonian Empire, six hundred five to five three eight BC. Right? Okay, next slide. 
This was the Assyrian kingdom, which was, which, which, uh, was the superpower during the time that Zephaniah was writing. Okay, so you notice how big Assyria was. Obviously, they hadn't conquered this Babylon problem, and they would rebel and conquer everything else. But you can see how big Assyria was. So for God to say that this day of the Lord will sweep across and destroy Assyria, that would be something quite hard to believe. But even more so, the capital of Assyria was right in the heart of Assyria. Nineveh, right? Was the capital of uh, Assyria. And if you look at the Wikipedia, okay, some of my information I must get from Wikipedia, you'll see that actually Nineveh was the first mega city of the world. Okay, like, you know, before Tokyo, before New York, before London, there was Nineveh. She was the first preeminent city of the day. Okay, so this is a picture of Nineveh during her prime. Okay, this was like the, the grandest, greatest city of that period. And God said, God predicted that in the blink of an eye, like a wind-blown shaft, Nineveh would be completely destroyed and no one would ever live there ever again. It's a bit like me predicting that uh, in 30 years, uh, actually I might be arrested as a terrorist so I will not say anything, but in 30 years, right, one of the major cities of this world will, 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 will be totally abandoned and no one will live there. That instead of people living in these super skyscrapers, there will be owls and, 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 and wolves and... What not? But that's what happened because we know from history uh, Nineveh was actually destroyed and today if you look at Nineveh this is what is left of Nineveh it's still in um, Iraq, right? Nineveh is in Iraq opposite very close to Mosul where the SI uh, sorry, ISIS is fighting, right? If you go there all you have today are ruins the city is still uninhabited and in fact there's there's this great Greek historian uh, called Xenophon okay? Sounds like a speaker, speaker company, but it's not. Okay, but there's this Greek historian called Xenophon, and apparently in 401 BC, he went to look for this great city, Nineveh, and he couldn't find it. Uh, all he found was other people living there, but it was, it was never the same again. So God actually proved to be true, isn't it? His words were very true. God's people in Zephaniah's time, had to seek him urgently. They had to seek righteousness and they had to seek humility because judgment day was coming and they couldn't seek him anymore once that judgment day happened. But the surprising thing comes in the the, the latter half of verse 3, isn't it? Because it says there in verse 3, Seek the Lord, all you humble the land, you who do what he commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility, Perhaps you'll be sheltered on the day of the Lord's anger. Now this word, perhaps, again, uh, it's a very surprising and unexpected word. And again, like uh, many people have uh, taught me, whenever you see something really surprising or shocking in the Bible, you have to ask yourself, why did God say, perhaps, why didn't He say, and therefore, you will be sheltered from God's judgment? I think because... If you look at God's character, God's character is one of perfect holiness and justice. And sin must be judged. But yet here, 
They were relying on God's mercy, His compassion and His love. And mercy and compassion and love and forgiveness is not something that you can demand from God. You can't say, I claim, I claim your forgiveness, I claim your mercy. In this instance, in the Old Testament, God says, come to me, seek me, seek righteousness, seek humility, and perhaps you'll be sheltered on the day. Now today as we listen to God's word 2,600 years ago, it sounds like such a long time, isn't it? doesn't make me feel so old anymore, right? The original audience was the people of Judah, right? Six, what was the dates again? 640 to 612 BC. That was the original audience. But I think that we, living today in 2014, we are the intended audience of this message. Because the day of the Lord is not finished when Babylon swept through and destroyed all those things. But rather the day of the Lord looks forward to the ultimate day of the Lord where God will judge everyone of God's people, everyone of people everywhere in the world, once and for all. Alright, so, okay, uh, Leonard, sorry, I've got to push you all the way to the end because uh, I, I changed the order. Yeah, so, oh, well, you're very fast. Okay, that's good. So the day of the Lord that we see here in uh, Zephaniah chapter 2 is just like a shadow or a, a foreshadowing of the ultimate day of the Lord which will come when Jesus comes again and He will judge the world once and for all. Now, uh, one slide backwards, Leonard. See, this is what it says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. It said, Now, brothers, about the times and dates, we do not need to write to you for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman and they will not escape. For the Lord did not appoint for us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with Him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up as in fact you're doing. See, on that day of the wrath which still is ahead of all of us, how do we escape God's wrath? We escape God's wrath, His fearsome and fiery wrath through receiving salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, now that we live this side of the cross, we know how God's grace and forgiveness and compassion is fulfilled. It comes to us because Jesus has died on the cross for our sins. See, the people who lived 2,600 years ago, they didn't know how God's grace would be manifested. But now that we live on this side of the cross, we know that it's through Jesus Christ. Once we have Jesus, we will have shelter on the day of the Lord, the final and ultimate day of the Lord, when all people will be judged. See, Romans chapter 5, okay, go back. It says, You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates His own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since now we've been justified by His blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through Him? See, through the blood of Jesus, 
we've been justified, how much more when the day of God's wrath comes shall we be saved? In John 3.36 it says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life. Why? For God's wrath remains on him. See, in conclusion, I remember reading about how in the early days of the formation of the United States of America, uh, the early settlers pushed from the coastal regions into the interior, where obviously they met the Red Indians and everything else. But uh, one of the other dangers that they faced was that they're always facing the danger of bushfire. You know, bushfire is where uh, in the dry prairie fields in the Midwest in America, the, the, there'll be dry fire, and the fire would, would be rushing through to meet them. And they couldn't run ahead of the fire because they had wagons and children and women and, and, and they couldn't get any faster than the fire. So how could they escape these bushfires as they tried to explore the central part of the United States? How would they escape the fire when they saw the fire? Well, what they did was they would figure out the direction of the wind and they would stand with their backs to the wind and they would start a fire in front of them. And after the fire had burned an empty space in front of them, they would then step into the empty area, safe in the knowledge of knowing that once that space had been burnt, the fire could no longer come in and kill them anymore. And I think that that's a picture of what Jesus does, isn't it? Because Jesus Christ on the cross is where God's fire, His fierce burning wrath of judgment has already burned. And if we go to the cross and we allow our sins to be paid by Jesus Christ, then when the day of God's wrath comes, God will not pour out His judgment upon us anymore because it's already been poured out on Jesus Christ. It's already been paid by Jesus Christ. So as we listen to Zephaniah 2 today, I would really like to encourage you, if you have not yet prepared for the day of the Lord, if you're not yet prepared for the day of God's wrath, then do so with great urgency before the day of God's wrath. Seek shelter in Jesus Christ. Seek God in Jesus Christ. Seek righteousness and humility and find yourself in Jesus Christ so that when the day of the Lord comes, and it will certainly come just as it did to the people of the Philistines, the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Assyrians, as it surely will come to all of us one day, we must always find ourselves seeking God through Jesus, finding shelter in Jesus, so that when the day comes, we will all be safe from the fire of God's judgment and His burning wrath. Let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, help us to see that the problem of sin is not pain. The problem of sin is judgment. The problem of sin specifically is how do we survive the day of the Lord? How do we survive your day, the day of your burning wrath where your justice and judgment will pour out on all sin? Help us to take heed and warning from Zephaniah chapter 2 to see that the day of the Lord is not a joke but it is real and that surely there will be one ultimate day of the Lord where all sin will be judged. Not just the sin of the Philistines or the Moabites or the Syrians or the Egyptians or the Judah, Judeans. 
But one day you say, there will be a sudden day of the Lord which will be terrible. So we pray for each and every one of us here today. We come before you with humility and beg you and ask you that you will help each and every one of us here find shelter in Jesus Christ. Because in Jesus Christ, your fierce wrath and judgment has already burned. And that if we find shelter in Him, Jesus has taken all our sins. He's been our substitute. And we no longer have to fear that day, but to actually know that on that day we will be saved and that salvation will come on that day instead of judgment. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.